You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. Hello and welcome to the Times Higher Education podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Custer, the editor of THE Campus. In this episode, three university leaders heading up their institution's public affairs and community engagement activities speak with us about the value of mutually beneficial partnerships with their local communities, culture groups, and governments. They talk about facilitating engagement and getting people out of their discipline-specific tribes on campus and the importance of asking what their community needs from them rather than telling it what they as an institution can offer. Huge thanks for joining me goes to Deborah Bull, the Vice President of Communities and National Engagement at King's College London, and to Derek Douglas, the Vice President for Civic Engagement and External Affairs at the University of Chicago, and to Dr. Julie Wells, the Vice President of Strategy and Culture at the University of Melbourne, who we begin with in this conversation. Julie, can you talk to me just about maybe some of the initiatives that you've got on your plate right now? Sure. Um, thanks, Sarah. Um, well, as vice strategy and culture is a fascinating portfolio because it mm. brings together strategy and planning with um, engagements, partnerships, uh, communications, brand marketing, mm. Mm. Uh, and also oversight of our cultural assets. So it really brings together all of those elements, um, which, if they are working well with the academic mission of the institution, can both build the university's reputation and, I think, amplify its impact. So um, that, mm. that's the big picture. Yes. In terms of our work around engagement and contributing to the communities in which we are located and with which we work, um, we have decided to focus on three signature partnerships. This is partly, I think, to give us the opportunity to build on long-established relationships and work at scale, and in some cases, develop scale. So those three partnerships um, are first and foremost with the City of Melbourne. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are part of the city's history. We were founded around the same time as a large number of other civic institutions. Um, and we were we were founded as part of the aspirations of a young British colony to uh, both replicate some of the institutions of of, of Britain, but also to build um, build a professional class. So, mm-hmm. in that sense, we have been part of the city's journey for a very long time. Our other two signature partnerships um, provide some contrast. One of them is in northeastern Arnhem Land, which is in a very remote part of Australia, sort of at the tip of the Northern Territory. And it is with the Yongle people, First Nations people. Uh, and that partnership is very focused on two-way learning. So we are working with communities which in many ways um, suffer significant social disadvantage, health dis- disadvantage, economic disadvantage, but in other ways are incredibly rich. We benefit greatly from two-way learning. Our students are engaged in projects. Our researchers are, are deeply embedded in community. And um, we see that as part of our mission, as, I, as one of Australia's leading urban universities, We need to be a university for the whole of Australia and indeed for the world. And uh, our our third partnership is in uh, the Goulburn Valley, which is in regional Victoria. That that partnership has a very strong First Nations focus as well, Mm -hmm. working with the Yorta Yorta people. Uh, But it is also uh, broader insofar as it encompasses a very large regional centre and hinterland Uh, which is one of the the fastest growing areas of Victoria, which is the state of Australia in which we're located. But it's also, um, again, very diverse, significant migration from many parts of the world, significant educational and economic issues and potential. And once again, our approach to that partnership is very much about building on long-term relationships with that community, mm. which we have by virtue of, of having a, uh, ag- an agricultural campus there that's been there since for over 100 years, mm. and um, a, a rural medical school, which is increasingly important in terms of, of um, 
health provision in regional Australia and shortage of health, health staff. So there are many dimensions to these three partnerships, but they are all built on a strong identification with community, um, a strong uh, alignment with our academic work, our research and teaching. And um, if I could just say a little bit more about the, the importance of the First Nations dimensions of this partnership. Mm. <clears throat> I think um, for all universities, we have to acknowledge our role in uh, the dispossession of Indigenous peoples and, uh, if you like, the creation of elites which then cast other people as the other. <laughs> that is a painful process. It's, it, it comes with admitting mistakes of the past and the consequences of actions that have been taken over 150 years of our history. And it also requires humility and a readiness to um, learn from Indigenous knowledges. And can you, um, can you just say a bit more about that, Julie, just in terms of um, perhaps making that admission, which I imagine was a quite difficult space for Australian universities to arrive at? And is you guys are perhaps a bit further along that road than other universities that might be working with First Nation groups in other countries? Oh, well, there are other great examples in other countries. And um, we have very strong links uh, through our Indigenous Knowledges Institute, but also through our engagement and partnerships work with universities, particularly in Aotearoa, New Zealand and in Canada. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't claim for Australian universities any great virtue in this space. Um, I think it's a journey we're on. <laughs> sure. Um, but I think for Melbourne in particular, as a, a kind of a, a colonial institution mm. uh, and sitting within a precinct, which is um, what Australia's premier health precinct, uh, with hospitals that were established at the same time as the universities to serve the growing colony, but were also involved in practices which removed Indigenous people from their families, which imposed um, Western practices and beliefs around health and well-being, sometimes in quite destructive ways, sometimes in very beneficial ways uh, on the Indigenous populations. Uh, it's a very variegated history that mm. we have to recognise and acknowledge. And um, I think the relationships with traditional owners and First Nations people help us to come to terms with that history and move in a very positive way into the future. Um, I can give you a few examples, if sure, you like, of, yes, of the sort of work do. we're doing. Uh, so we were part of establishing the Royal Women's His Hospital, which sat next to our campus, literally across the road. Um, a few years ago, we redeveloped that site. We bought the old hospital. It had been, it was disused. The hospital had moved to another part of the precinct. We bought the site and we've developed it as an innovation hub. So a different sort of engagement, uh, creating a space which brings um, industry partners, community partners uh, and researchers together into a space where they can mingle and mix and where there's significant um, infrastructure to support collaboration. But in doing that, um, the initial, you know, you always do a heritage plan for these old buildings, and the initial heritage plan started with colonial settlement. It didn't actually look back at what had come before. So we actually had to redo it. We, we got this plan and we went, hang on, there's something missing here. So we redid it and we worked with um, our academic lead, our Indigenous academic leadership and with traditional owners to think about how the Indigenous histories from pre-colonial times through to um, the 19th and 20th centuries where Indigenous people were very much part of the medical and scientific history of that place mm. could be reflected in the design, in the, um, in the vegetation that we chose, in the naming, and that was very significant as well, in the stories that were told through art and poetry and narratives embedded in the building design. And that partnership with Indigenous leaders and traditional owners has to be ongoing. So we have to reflect changing history 
as the site develops. Mm. So um, that was a really, um, it was an interesting exercise in learning from some mistakes. But I think more importantly, it shows the importance of place in the way we think about our engagement with community. And I think that's something um, we would share very much with Kings and with Chicago. Mm. It sounds like what you're saying is place isn't just a, a physical spot that we are in right now. It has a history. It has a geography to it. It has people attached to it, past, present and future. And all the dimensions of, of human interaction and relationships. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to now whiz over to the Northern Hemisphere and bring in Deborah Bull, Baroness Bull, who is um, at King's College London as the Vice President for Communities and National Engagement. You're coming up on your decade anniversary, Deborah. Tell us a little bit about um, perhaps the work that you're doing at King's. And I know that you have a, a special interest in the arts and the role that it can play in civic engagement. Yeah, and how fascinating to uh, listen to 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 Julie and and uh, to see the you know the different scopes of our roles and the ways that they're they're manifest. Um, so yes, I've been at Kings for for ten years now, and 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 I, the really interesting part of my journey, uh, one of the interesting parts of my journey, is is looking at how one facilitates engagement between a university, which is a set of communities in its own, in its own right, mm. a set of communities who very often see themselves as distinct, who very often see themselves as autonomous, um, uh, who don't always recognize an institutional center, you know, which makes institutional partnerships. And I applaud uh, Julie for, you know, being able to talk about three big institutional partnerships. They can be very, very difficult when you're, uh, when the lifeblood of your university, the people, the students, the academics, uh, and, don't in a sense cluster around a center they cluster around their subject and their mm-hmm. their, their own tribe mm-hmm. um, so what's been very interesting for me is working out ways to facilitate that engagement and uh, increasingly to take oneself one's ego out of the equation you know that old adage that it's amazing what you can achieve if you don't mind who gets the credit mm. you know could be a sort of a you know a subtitle for any any of our roles here um so so what's been very interesting is to move in my understanding of what you know what would what might a university want from an outsider like me you know I've not come up through through a university I've definitely come from the outside what might they want from me in fact, what they wanted was my ability to facilitate, to convene and, and to, you know, to, to enable others to do things. And to, so it might, in my role, I very much moved from my understanding of what the university needed from me to this much more facilitative um, role. So, mm. so we, we very much have an ethos of coordinate centrally, deliver locally. And it is you know, a, a, a priority um, for, for, for me and my you know, very small team at the centre is to be listening um, and consulting with different uh, communities in order to find uh, those, those opportunities. Julie talked about two-way learning. I talk about symbiotic value. You know, where, are the, where are the partnerships that can deliver really significant learning for our students, um, distinctive research opportunities for our academics, but crucially, deliver value to 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 communities so 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 that's really been you know one element of the sort of you know the sort of the journey and and yes I definitely started in the cultural space and looking at uh, the role of arts and culture in you know in enriching student opportunities etc etc but have moved more broadly um, specifically really to think about London over the last few Mm -hmm. five years thinking Mm -hmm. about London King's is not a campus-based university so we have we have over 50 buildings in London uh, clustered around five sites. Um, uh, and so we have a footprint in three major boroughs, Lambeth, Westminster and Southwark, which are very distinctive boroughs. They, um, they have many commonalities, of course, but they are also distinctive in their characteristics. They are each of them a diaspora of the world's population uh, because uh, you know, London immediately attracts 
you know, lots of different uh, people to, to cluster in those, those boroughs, which are very central do. So, um, so we really set out on a journey five years ago to, you know, for the first time really to, to go out and not say, hey, we're good at this, do you want some of it? Uh, but to say, what is it you need? And mm. probably even more importantly, and this has you know, been a, another piece of learning, what is the lived experience in those communities which can bring value to our students and, and, and to research? Um, and you know, that, that is sort of understood within health, uh, within the health uh, faculties to an extent. I mean, it's a, it's a relatively new understanding that you might listen to the patient who lives with chronic pain and take their lived experience as having the same value as the, you know, the sort of the academic research. Um, but it's, it, is a, it is a sort of a new way I think for universities of engaging with communities it's not be selling but to be listening mm -hmm. and then to be identifying those areas where by working together one can find this sweet spot of, of, of mutual benefit um, so so yeah I, I guess those are some of my sort of key learnings I think the other um, the other thing I would point to, I mean, I, I, I really am struck by the institutional uh, partnerships that Julie talked about because, you know, that those things are very difficult to achieve. I guess where we have been able to do that, um, as I said earlier, it's very much about finding the opportunities for our faculties. So not only are we listening externally, but we're listening to the faculties too, saying, what is it you need? Where, where do you need to make the connections? But uh, we have really identified the sort of gateway organizations within our local boroughs and within the mayor's office in mm -hmm. London. Mm -hmm. So recognizing that there is a, a set of local authority organizations, grassroots organizations, charities, voluntary organizations who can act as a, as a gateway in different communities because they are trusted within those, within those communities, whereas we need to earn that trust. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, that's been a quite an effective way of working and to see mm -hmm. those partnerships, um, you know, start with, you know, maybe a, a, a volunteering opportunity, but lead to a teaching program, lead to a research collaboration and to see those relationships enrich over time has that's been very very rewarding mm. are there any specific projects julie mentioned the the women's hospital that they've turned into an innovation hub are there any specific projects that you're really excited about that you're working on right now <laughs> that's a really interesting well so the sort of the innovation district idea um, is something we are thinking about in london with our partners in south london so thinking about um, a, a, an, an innovation cluster, which we call SC1. That's a fictional postcode, South Central one. It doesn't exist. Um, it would really be SE1 is probably where it's located. But thinking about, given that we have, um, we have our, uh, our, our major uh, medical research faculties, we have the, the big hospitals with their different sets of expertise. You know, we are you know, we, 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 we are world leading in some aspects, you know, artificial intelligence and imaging and so on and so on. Uh, but working out how we can partner with local communities, with the local authorities and with industry to create um, an innovation district in a spot where, um, you know, pl place, place in London. I mean, there is no space left in London, right? There's, a, there's no empty site. Mm -hmm. um, that you can just say, well, we'll take that, you know, that was a women's hospital, we'll colonize that. You know, it, it's, it's largely all gone. So it's about working with it within existing uh, spaces and infrastructure um, and thinking imaginatively about that. So, so that's very exciting. And, and actually, I mean, rather wonderfully, another place-based thing over north of the river. So um, uh, the, the original King's building is in Westminster, uh, it's in the site of Somerset House, which, you know, some people will know as a very distinctive site um the, the 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 area north of that old witch um has recently been pedestrianized so the strand part of the uh, has been pedestrianized and it's it's very exciting because it it creates a connection between two of our key buildings the king's building and, and bush house mm -hmm. um so so in a way having said we're not a campus university and we're not we are suddenly faced with the prospect of a campus feel Mm -hmm. at the at the king's uh, at the at the sort of westminster site and that's really exciting again to think how do we work with local communities with the other stakeholders um in, in that area to create something which is distinctive and again finds those opportunities for our students for our staff but also for the people who live and live and work around there mm. and that brings in another 
I guess, interesting facet to this when we are talking about universities in a place and the place where universities are is also just the, the physical space and how it's designed and how it allows communities and to flow in or out and how porous it is for the, the local t- community to come out and really feel like it's it's part of their neighborhood. Yeah, and, and you know, there is a real tension here, of course, because although uh, the ambition is absolutely to be porous, permeable, have people flowing through, we live in a world in which there are tensions around security, you know, particularly mm-hmm. in our major cities. And, and that is, you know, it's, a, I mean, I used to be a, um, a governor at the BBC and, you know, at the time at which they, they created buildings that were completely open to the public. And then, you know, we had the terrible attacks of the, you know, the terrorist attacks of the early, early 20th century. And suddenly the mindset had to shift, you know, it wasn't mm. going to be okay. Mm. Um, and so it's really interesting to think about what porosity and permeability means and how you can achieve that you know, within within in the environment. And of course, if you've got lots of outdoor space, that you know that that provides a an, a, a, a sort of an interim interface space. But if you only have buildings onto the street, um, but yes, absolutely. I mean, I think I think what's 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 interesting uh, is to think how one gives communities, you know. A, an invitation to engage and some of it is about coming into the buildings but some of it is doing the reverse some of it is about taking the university and what it does out into community spaces Mm. and some of it is about simply opening up um you know the the thinking and the ideas and 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 I guess you know we will probably come on to talk about what we've learned over the last two years but the, mm. the potential of virtual interaction now is so much richer than I think any of us imagined it might be. I think we always thought it would be a, a second best. I think now we see it's a genuine alternative mm. or, or, you know, part of a set of interactions that has its own validity. And so, so uh, you know, what, what a, you know, invitation to engage means in this, this new world is something that's sort of up up for debate but we're really excited at the at the the strand site to have this potential to spill out you know if we'd spilled out before we'd have all got killed by the passing buses you know now we can genuinely spill out and interact and um and, and engage with you know the warp and the weft of london life um in a way that's going to be very new to us across the Atlantic. We have Derek Douglas here, the Vice President for Civic Engagement and External Affairs at the University of Chicago. Derek, hello, welcome. Hi, thanks <laughs> tell for us, having me. Tell us about the work that you are currently uh, focusing on at the University of Chicago. Sure, so it's, it's really wonderful listening to Julie and Deborah because while each of our contexts are different, there's a lot of similarities in terms mm. of the issues we're working on, the approach, even the language, the idea, this notion of mutual benefit, which is language that we stress because mutual benefit suggests that both sides of the partnership gain something from the collective work. It's very different than a model that's say more of a charitable moral obligation where you may be doing something for somebody, but you don't necessarily get any benefit yourself. And I think as universities are getting more and more into this work of being more engaged, um, having a frame that recognizes the benefits and the values that the community brings to the university, not just we have resources, let's help them out because they don't. I think that's really critical. And when when we think about the way in which we approach, and we call it civic engagement, at the core, at the center of a lot of our work is this notion of mutually beneficial partnerships. So that was really um, positive to to hear. Um, One other bit of context that also is kind of coming out is the models that we all take, while the end game is similar, the the models are a little bit different. So Mm. for us, when we talk about our civic engagement model at University of Chicago, partnership is definitely part of it. Another big part of it, though, is this notion of a university-wide commitment to civic engagement. And by that, I mean we have a framework where all corners of the university play a role in engaging. It's not just my office. I oversee the Office of Civic Engagement. We obviously play a leadership role. 
in delivering um, programs and also supporting and creating partnerships and connectivity for others. But the various deans at the university, the other vice presidents at the university, they all have people, they all have programs that they run independent of my office that are focused on how they can drive impact in the community. Hmm. And that wasn't always the case. I would say that 10 years ago when I came, the, the model was a bit more OCE. My office did the community work while the rest of the university did its work. But over the last 10 years, we spent a lot of time trying to focus on the culture of the university and having civic engagement become more of the DNA and the fabric. And I think now one of the things that's uh, certainly a distinctive feature of the way we do engagement is that all parts, all corners can see themselves in that work. Um, in terms of the pillars, to, to take some of what Julie mentioned about the areas that they focus on, hmm. we kind of have a framework that builds around off of four pillars. And the way I, I talk about it is that when we want to do civic engagement, we wanted to build it off of things that universities do. Um, I often say the University of Chicago is not the city of Chicago. We're not a bank. We're not a foundation. We're a university. So what are the strengths and the assets and the resources that we have? And how can we leverage those to have an impact in the community? And so when you think about that, obviously the mission of university is research and teaching. So those are two of the pillars of our model. And if you take research, for example, we have faculty across the university engaged in projects, but we have really critical partnerships with the city of Chicago that underpin the research we do. So for example, um, we have an organization called the, the UChicago Consortium on School Research. They have a partnership with the Chicago Public Schools where they get access to proprietary data. They study and analyze it and they develop interventions that can improve the delivery of education in urban school districts that Chicago public schools will often take and adopt for the school system in Chicago. For one study they did was showing, it's called On Track. And it showed that if you can look at students in the ninth grade that are on track in terms of attendance, their grades are, are they're passing, um, they're um, showing up for the various things that uh, the activities and things that they're responsible to do they're essentially on track not falling through the cracks the greater percentage you have on track the highest likelihood the, the student will graduate from high school mm -hmm. and chicago had a huge percentage 30 40 percent that were not on track by that metric so what the city did was say let's focus on making sure at the ninth grade level our students stay on track and by doing that over a period of years the graduation rates went up dramatically. That came out of research at the university, but it was done in partnership with the city and CPS. And we do research. We have something called the Crime Lab, which works with the Chicago Police Department and focuses on public safety issues. We have the Inclusive Economy Lab that does a lot of research around poverty and works with various city agencies. So a big part of our impact model is urban research, but with the intent and the mission to drive change in communities, to benefit communities. Mm -hmm. Education is another area that is core to the mission of universities. And we have a whole set of civic engagement work that flows from that. One example I will give you is, um, I'll give you two quick examples. One is this thing we started about seven years ago called the Civic Leadership Academy. So there was an issue, there's a challenge in urban cities across the country where there's not a lot of professional leadership development programs for nonprofit leaders and public sector leaders. And I used to work in the White House for President Obama before I came here. And I would travel around the country. And one of the common things I would hear is that all these ideas and visions and programs sound great, but we need capacity and leadership development to execute on those ideas. And what can be done to support that? So I came to the University of Chicago. We said, well, we have faculty, they teach. These are folks in the city who are looking for that kind of education. Let's create a program that brings nonprofit and public and public sector leaders together in a cohort and provides a curriculum 
to develop their skills, their networks, their knowledge base, so they can perform their jobs better and ascend in, in positions in the city. That program has been going on for seven, eight years. It's now housed at the Harris School of Public Policy. We have faculty from our business school, law school, social work school, all teaching in it. And it's become one of the signature programs in the city. So it's just a way to leverage the educational strength of the university to impact a challenge in the city and provide benefit. Mm-hmm. We do the same with p- partnerships and opportunities for our students to engage um, through student internships and experiential learning. Last two pillars I'll mention briefly. Um, while research and teaching are the mission of the university, one of the core functions of the university is it's an, an anchor for the neighborhoods around. It's a place-based institution and the University of Chicago is situated on the south side of Chicago. And we happen to be a neighborhood that is surrounded by communities of significant need. If you look at the various distress metrics of economic distress, unemployment, life expectancy and the like, some of the most challenged neighborhoods are right around the university. Yet we are the largest employer on the south side. We're the largest purchaser on the south side. We're the largest developer on the south side in terms of real estate. We have the hospital that serves the most people on the south side. So we're an anchor. And Mm. so the question was, how can we leverage our economic strength to also provide opportunity in the community? So an initiative we developed was called UChicago Local. That's what we labeled it. But the basic idea was we buy a lot of stuff. We hire a lot of people. How can we organize ourselves so that we're purchasing more from the businesses that are on the south side of Chicago that need this kind of economic confusion? How can we hire more of the people who live in the neighborhoods right around the university, as opposed to people who maybe live in the suburbs or even other states? And through that initiative, we've been able to really dramatically increase our our local purchasing. I think the numbers that we've done in terms of our purchasing power is um, in the last 10 years, over $235 million have been directed from the university to invest in businesses that are on the south side of Chicago. Mm. Um, I think about a third to maybe more than a third of the employees at the university now live on the south side of Chicago. Mm. And so it's really just taking what we do anyway and directing it in a way that's targeted place-based to improve the community. The last area of our model, our fourth pillar is around innovation and entrepreneurship. You know, universities do a lot of research and we have faculty who are interested in th- thinking about how can they take their ideas around research and bring them out to the, the world through entrepreneurship and licensing and the like. And so we have a Polsky Center that's um, based out of the business school for uh, Polsky Center for Innovation Entrepreneurship, which not only works with faculty who are trying to develop new technologies and commercialize their work, but we built in a significant community entrepreneurship element. So we actually have an incubator in Hyde Park in the community off campus. We work with companies and and entrepreneurs, sometimes they're very small and on, on the south side looking to grow their businesses. We provide technical assistance, access to capital, all of this leveraging the innovation and entrepreneurial ecosystem that the university has. And increasingly, we're trying to think about how can we attract more companies to these South Side neighborhoods, Hmm. more anchors who can drive that kind of opportunity. So again, these are just, that's the pillars of our model. I wanted to give you examples so you could see concretely how the work's playing out. But it's just taking the assets and the things that we do and asking ourselves the question, how can we leverage these things and direct them to have more of an impact in our home city and our home communities? Hmm. And just by asking that question, which was a question that wasn't always asked, it's unbelievable in terms of the amount of things you can unlock to have impact. All, all, all three of you speak and you guys are all based in very unique cities, Chicago, London and Melbourne. Um, 
hearing you guys talk a lot about your communities and how you want to reach out. And Derek, you even said it was a, is a two-way um, relationship. It reminded me of some comments that um, the president of Northeastern University made for Digital Universities Week US. And one thing that he said is that the university's main customer is society and that we exist because of a social compact we have with society. And I think universities get that. But does society get that? Would Chicago, would Melbourne, would London, would they say, yeah, that's our partner? And if not, why? I mean, you know, immediately I, I want I want to ask you to unpick society there because, you know, of course, there are so many stakeholders within mm. the cities in which we live mm. and and different uh, set different sectors of those uh, would would consider the universities differently. I mean, I get the point you're you're making, you know, there will be sectors of, of, of any city that will will not see see, you know, immediately see the value um, and will be subject to some you know, misconceptions or preconceptions about what, what universities are and universities haven't always done themselves massive faves in this space. You know, they have been impermeable um, uh, and difficult to engage with and perhaps have treated the communities around them, you know, a, a little bit more as maybe guinea pigs, uh, research subjects rather than research partners. You know, these are all these are all, um, uh, you know, charges that you, you, you could, you know, in the in the past certainly have have have, have thought about. Um, uh, so I think, you know, it, it would be different depending on depending on who you ask. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, under your question is, do universities need to do more? to you know demonstrate and live the, the the value to society you know yes of course i think we 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 would all say that but i mean it is really inspiring to hear you know just to follow on the back of you know what derek's been saying about the ways in which universities really can uh, become a net contributor to to societies but i think julie's got her hand up yeah go for it julie <laughs> um yeah, I, I really agree with what you've said, Deborah. I think some parts of society would definitely identify with mm. a university or even with the higher education project as adding significant value to the community in ways that go beyond just the education of, 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 of undergrads and the production of research. But it is very partial and it is very experience-based. Um, I, I think... Um, the social licence that comes from community confidence has never been more important. And we're really experiencing it in Australia at the moment because we are uh, six, five days out from a federal election, a national mm -hmm. election. Mm -hmm. And um, it's very interesting to observe how um, the, the political climate has, has hardened against the higher education sector. Mm. Uh, we, we live in a political culture where politicians not only feel empowered to bag universities as irrelevant or privileged or fat or unresponsive, in some quarters they actually see it as building electoral support, mm -hmm. that they can play on um, a more general distrust of institutions in a time of disruption and social and economic upheaval and with it dislike of, of so-called elites. So um, I think, you know, it, it, it could not only be uh, a matter of our purpose being undermined, it, it can actually be an existential threat in terms of lack of support for the funding or the autonomy that makes mm -hmm. these contributions possible. Mm -hmm. But um, to be optimistic, and I, <laughs> I'm always pretty optimistic, I think... Um, it, it underpins the importance of engagement and the sort of work that, that Derek and Deborah have been talking about uh, because I think it's through um, demonstrating a willingness to listen, demonstrate, and, and through that, demonstrating um, a willingness to contribute in a very active and meaningful way that we start to rebuild that trust with, and with, with, with community and to be able to talk about it to be able to show that we celebrate it, that we recognise it as, as something valuable the institution does to um, provide a platform and, and, and if you like, um, an amplification of, the, of all of the work that people associate with universities. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to build on that very quick, briefly, because when you gave the quote from the president who and you said, 
you know, I know universities all get that. Does the community society get that? It's not necessarily the case of even all universities get that mm -hmm. it is part of their role, responsibility, opportunity to have this kind of impact in community. And one of the projects that brought the three of our institutions together early on was we actually did a report called Advancing University Engagement, which you may want to check out. And the idea was to try to come up, create a model, an objective model that would encourage and incentivize more universities to embrace engagement as part, one of the core aspects of what they do hmm. and to make it more true what the president said and or at least what you derive from what the president said. And I think there's work for us to do, those of us who are engaged in this work and are seeing the value to our community and to our institutions to try to spread that word and bring in additional partners um, to grow the field, if you will, to grow the, uh, uh, um, the chorus of folks who are engaging in this. Now, I wanna also speak briefly to the notion of how the society would react. First of all, we're all three different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. And Deborah was exactly right. Depending on who you ask, you get a different view. Some would say the university is great, some would, but you also find some people that there's a double consciousness about the university. On the one hand, if you look at the South side of Chicago, there are people where the University of Chicago is the main economic lifeline for these communities. We're the jobs, this is where they go for their hospital, say everything. But at the same time, because they're struggling and they see this university that's wealthy and well-resourced, there's a tension, a lack of trust. Are you doing enough? Hmm. And so they, it's almost like they love you and are dependent on you on the one hand, or, or feel a connection to you. And then on the other hand, they don't trust you and they're, they don't, they're not sure about you. And so one of the things that we've been trying to do, and this goes to the point Julie made earlier, is to think about ways in which we can build that trust with the community. And so we created, Julie, I don't know if I mentioned this, a, a, a council on New Chicago community relations, historical, contemporary, contemporary and future. And the objective of this group, there's 22 people, 11 from the community, 11 who are affiliated with the university. And the charge is to look at the history of the university since its founding and the nature of the relationship between university and community and gather the facts of what happened, acknowledge the things that were not positive, and, but then also talk about what can the future look like mm -hmm. in terms of how the University of Chicago and the communities around can relate and work together. And so that's part of the reconciliation that needs to happen, mm. I think, by our institutions to get society to accept and understand and, and value um, what we're doing. Yeah, Deborah. Uh, so a slightly, a slightly uh, related point. I, I'm, I'm musing on um, uh, perhaps the different situations in our cities. I mean, in London, we have around 40 higher education institutions. I mean, some bigger than others, but you know, there are, there are many on the patch. So there's not only the question of how stakeholders might see our university, but how do they see higher education mm. you know, as a whole? And I think one of the ways in which we don't do ourselves a greatest service, both individually and collectively is, is storytelling. So, you know, typically in an individual institution, um, because going back to that point I made earlier about, you know, the autonomy of our academic communities and institutes, and, you know, they, uh, they, they, they want to tell their stories. So we, we don't always decide what institutional story we, we want to tell. And then we don't decide as a city across these 40 yep. higher education institutions, what story do we want to tell that mm -hmm. is not one about competition, but is one about collaboration, which is one about the the sum total of these institutions providing you know uh, in terms of uh, educating a future generation in terms of solving the world's challenges in terms of empowering communities and so on so I, I, I think we do need to get better at, um, at creating some shared narratives um, that, that, that really start to, to, to demonstrate some of the things that have been demonstrated by you know, colleagues here and what's actually happening. Hmm. Kind of working cohesively together as a, a higher education sector. Um, 
Julie, you mentioned the Australian general election that's coming up this weekend that will probably have already passed by the time people are listening to this. But it does bring up uh, an interesting point, which is the role of politics in a lot of the work that you guys are doing, I'm sure. And we do have some pretty big political clout uh, in this podcast today. So I'd be interested in hearing perhaps how you think universities could do a better job of lobbying for the experts or their role in society Universities often get caught up in the culture wars that are happening, certainly in the UK and the US and to a certain extent Australia. How do you see uh, the role that universities uh, are playing in this improving? Julie, do you want to start? That's a, that's a really big question. Um, <laughs> I think, um, you know, government uh, has, has multiple, there are multiple parts of that relationship. Um, in Australia, they are funders and regulators mm. of higher education, different levels of government. Um, they are also uh, st- direct stakeholders in what we do. Um, and we have compacts and agreements with both levels of government about how we contribute to state and, and national goals. Uh, but they're also partners in engagement. And um, I think uh, we have found that that, I mean, government can be difficult because it can be quite impenetrable. And you'll have a project where you think, you know, there's a community need, you know, there is academic capability and you want to bring government into it. And it's finding not just the message that will resonate, but also the part of government that is going to have the resource, the will and the interest in doing this, whether it's local government or, in our case, state or provincial government or national government. And I think that is part of the challenge. And um, it does come back to being open to uh, conversations that you might not have, uh, you might go out with an idea of who's going to be interested and what you need to do, and you have to be flexible and responsive and be ready to shift. But when it works, I think government can be an incredible partner with universities in, in community engagement. Um, And we've got a great example running at the moment. One of the things we have in common with King's is that we host uh, a node of Science Gallery International, which is a, um, I don't quite know how to describe it, Deborah. It's not quite a museum. It's not quite an art gallery. A place where science and art collide in order to explore the big contemporary challenges in imaginative and innovative ways. And, you know, don't, don't, it is very much Science Gallery Melbourne. You know, it is, it's not a node of anywhere. It's incredibly distinctive what you've done there. And, you know, hats off to you. Um, uh, so, so, you know, yeah, absolutely. But it isn't a museum and it's not a gallery. Um, but it is a place where ideas can really be uh, explored through this collision between art and science. Will that yeah, do? <laughs> and, and a collaboration between scientists and, and artists as well, pitched mm-hmm. to 16 to 24-year-olds. So the example I'd, I'd give is um, for a long time we tried to get government interested in Science Gallery and we were going through arts ministries, cult, you know, creative industries, hitting a brick wall. It was when we went to education that we found a partner mm-hmm. and it took us a while to get there. And so now we're partnering with the Education Department of Victoria to uh, host through Science Gallery what we call the STEM Centre for Excellence, which brings um, uh, students from, I I think it's, it's, it's 50 or 60 Victorian schools into the gallery for experiential learning with their teachers with designated learning spaces we've built collaboratively for, you know, serious, serious education. And um, it's not just the students, it's also the teacher education and, and, and how teachers can think about teaching science differently. Um, and, and so our, our faculty of education is involved, our faculty of science is involved it's bringing kids who may not have aspired to go to the University of Melbourne onto our campus mm. and, and know they're welcome. So um, I offer that as a counterpoint to sort of the rather pessimistic view I had of, I put about government earlier, that if we can, it's a little bit like the point Derek and Deborah were both making about listening and finding that, that sweet spot where institutional assets meet community need and where you can find the broader range of partners to to work with on this. Hmm. One thing I wanted to distinguish, though, 
And um, it's actually another area in which our universities collaborate that Julie can speak to is the dif distinction between government and like Julie, our university, there's a huge interplay and in, interface with government. Most of the research funding in the US comes from the federal government. Mm -hmm. There's corporate, but the bulk of it comes from the federal government. Um, and there's regulations of things we have to deal with. But in terms of politics, we actually have a, a distinct culture at the University of Chicago where at the institutional level, we actually do not get involved in political um, issues. And one of the things that underpins that principle is this notion of freedom of expression. And there was a report done in the 1970s actually by a group of faculty at the University of Chicago called the Calvin Report. And they were asked the question, it was during the Vietnam War and it was a politically hot issue and, and there were a lot of passion on either side. And the question was, is this type of issue something the university should be weighing in on for or against whatnot? And the faculty committee wrote a really interesting, it's not long, but it's a really interesting report talking about the foundation of a university is the freedom of expression, the ability of faculty members to do research and ask the questions and explore the things they want to explore. And that if the institution were to take issues, political issues, it could have a chilling effect on freedom of expression. Because if you're a faculty member that wants to write that the war is not good, but your institution, your employer is saying it is good, that may chill or curb your willingness to explore and fully probe that issue. Fast forward about five, six years ago, we had a Stone, Jeff Stone led a faculty commission that came up with the Chicago principles around freedom of expression and how those kind of play out. Hmm. So I think that there, in the university context, at least for us, government and interplay with government and that is huge. It's a big part of what we do. I mentioned the work with Chicago public schools and the like, but that's distinct from politics hmm. where the university doesn't take institutional positions. Now faculty take positions, students, people are free to take whatever positions they want, but as an institution, they refrain because out of this notion and idea around freedom of expression and the centrality of that to the functioning of a university. Hmm. I just want and to draw you, that distinction. And do you I don't know, know if anyone agrees or disagrees, you know? No, it's so interesting, Dope, because I was about to say exactly the same thing as you, but to take it in a totally different direction. So I was oh. going to say that um, there's engagement with government and then there is engagement with politics, by which I mean policy generation. Oh, because yes. You way. see, because it's the, this conversation could be a podcast on its own, but it's <laughs> so interesting uh, from my work in the Lords to see which universities effectively engage with policymakers mm, mm, uh, yes. and which take the time and put in Great place point. the resources in order to effectively engage. And when they do, it is so valuable because, of course, policy has to be based on evidence. But too often, evidence is not accessible to a busy policymaker. And so there is a way in which one wants universities to engage with policy, policymakers and politicians of all colors, whether or not they're in government. Um, so there is a kind of a positive way of, of thinking about, about that too. And I think the, yeah. other, the other point, which ties in a little bit to, to Julie's point about students, you know, it's about how we educate the next generation to be able to grapple with difficult issues, to be able to, um, to work within democratic processes, to not be um, silenced, you know, to, to, to marshal their arguments, to engage in debate. And, and the way that we, we, do, we do that is, is absolutely crucial to the, to the future of, of democracy. And mm. I, I guess in London, uh, you know, well, I mean, we're all close to uh, political centers, aren't we? But, you know, being so close to Westminster and being able to leverage those, those connections so that our students can have this kind of rounded um, education around the business of politics feels really important. Yeah, and uh, just to say, I'm, I'm glad you made that distinction, Derek, and I think in my question, I was thinking more around the politics of things, and I guess the politics that universities can often get wrapped up on in just oh, in terms of... internal politics, okay. Well, no, not internal politics. I'm thinking more um, just kind of public opinion, the public opinion oh, argument opinion. about where higher education lies in that and, and how you guys... 
how you guys take that into consideration in your work. And Deborah, you mentioned just really working the, the policy angle and going and speaking to the policymakers, which is, is one way to influence and show your value to society, to the people who are going to be eventually making um, legislation around that. So that, that was basically where, where that question was yeah. coming from. And what's interesting is that on the po politics issue, so even this notion of freedom of expression in the US at least, has become quite politicized. Mm, yes. Last you know, we were one of the champions of freedom of expression, our president in the university. And then the last administration, they seized on it because they said, oh, conservative voices are being squelched out. Mm -hmm. So they wanted to pass legislation requiring universities to act a certain way. And our president said, well, wait a second. We're saying freedom of expression is important, but it's not for the government to come in and dictate to universities how they need to control their speech or whatnot. That's not mm -hmm. the role for the government. Mm -hmm. So you're mm -hmm. right, Sarah, mm -hmm. they do politicize. Even the issue of staying out gets politicized. Mm -hmm. And we have exactly that bill about that to go too? through Parliament yes. now. Yes. Freedom of expression in, yes. in higher education. Yeah. Yes. Not and, even and in we have also had legislation right. around that, which uh, makes having policies around freedom of expression and academic freedom a condition of funding. And mm -hmm. then the government increasingly injecting its view about what those policies should look exactly. like into the discussion. Mm. But um, I mentioned the importance of social licence and I think, you know, we, we are under so much pressure at the moment because of what we might loosely call culture wars, which mm. um, where, where I guess there we are um, caught between polarised views around rights and freedoms. You know, if I think about debates around uh, gender and feminism on one hand and the right of trans and gender diverse people to assert their identity and, and, and be respected for who they are, I think universities have a particular role to play in these debates because we are places where then there needs to be freedom of expression and robust debate. And we are places that must also, to fulfil our mission, be diverse, inclusive and, and welcoming of all people. Mm. So I think um, the challenge that, that I observe is for universities to really be true to their lights and it, is, it comes to political independence mm -hmm. and a commitment to freedom of expression mm -hmm. and a commitment to academic freedom and a commitment to offering opportunity and, a, you know, a safe and welcoming environment for everyone. And how we reconcile that is really tricky, but it does come back to consistency and recognising ourselves as creating that special space where debate can happen and it should be. Debate is never safe. But, but it should be respectful and it should be robust and it should be informed. Mm. And, and so I think the pressure for us to really stick to our lights on that has never been more greater and never been more important. We've talked a lot about place, your local community, all that stuff. As we are moving into an increasingly digital environment within universities, how are you guys thinking about that in terms of your outreach and that two-way relationship you have with your First Nation communities or your Southside Chicago communities or the SC1 uh, postcode that you guys are working with? Any sort of benefits that you might see from this new digital transformation? Deborah, let's start with you. Um, well, I'm, I'm going to talk about some... Uh, I, I, don't, I don't have a full answer to this, but what was really interesting during COVID was um, you know in the first lockdown uh, that uh, that people went uh, a lot of our students went and, and staff went to their home which was outside London so immediately our local community which was instantly connected through the ongoing business of teaching and you know learning and research uh, was connected digitally but their home place was somewhere else now what mm. you also got during COVID was a a really enhanced passionate desire to do something useful be it you know uh, cook for local people or deliver medicines or whatever it was and what we saw was our staff and students doing that for their local community but in the place in which they either grew up or they they, they call home because they you know they're back at their parents place and it really started this very interesting thought process and as I say I don't know where it goes but around what local means when you have a global 
community that temporarily cluster, be it for their three years or their 10 years of being a professor, what it is, they temporarily cluster in the place that we call home, London. But actually they have a strong sense of local, you know, either through their heritage or their fa for their family. Mm -hmm. And it did seem that in thinking about a future strategy for local engagement, local civic engagement, one could, um, you know, a bit, a bit like sort of, you know, lights on a map of the world, you know, you could start to see a bit like, an, an air, you know, those airline charts, they say, it's always Chicago, isn't it? You know, you fly out of Chicago, we, we fly to all these cities around the world, and you see the sort of the, the dot and the lines. The you could think about, out the nodes, you could mm. think about King's community as being, you know, rooted in London, but with these massive set of, of, of connections all across the globe. And how could you usefully harness that in seeking, uh, you know, you seeking to make some really positive change in the world? Because while some of those problems and opportunities will be different, actually we know many of them are common. You know, we, we have these big global challenges which, which you share, you know, whether you're in, you know, India or in Birmingham. Mm. Um, so I think, I think that's a, just an interesting way of, of thinking about it. As I say, it's, it's definitely not an answer, but it's a sort of a thought process that's mm. ongoing. Mm. Derek, how are you thinking about it? Well, I'll bring a different, a slightly different angle to it because it was interesting when COVID hit, we were very nervous about the, um, having to move to the more of a digital platform to do our engagement because we had had a model which was very hands-on everything was in person getting together meetings and the like and I will say that on on one level um, as Deborah alluded to earlier on um, being able to have the digital engagement as one of the tools that we could now use to reach people has proven to be very powerful and I think that one, oftentimes you get more people showing up to stuff because it's digital, it's easier, more convenient mm -hmm. for them to participate than if I have to drive in the rain and go to X, Y, or Z. Um, also, it enables, because the, the, it's, it's pretty low cost and pretty easy to stand up, you can do more engagement. When you're doing broader in-person things, it's a little bit more of a production involved. And I think that, so the frequency the ability to reach more people, the ability for people to participate has been a very positive thing. And I see us incorporating this in an ongoing way. The challenge for us though, is that a digital platform for engagement is only as successful as the people you're trying to engage having access to mm -hmm. broadband and access mm -hmm. to connectivity. And on the South side of Chicago, where we happen to reside, there's large parts of the city that don't have access to good broadband. And so you have parts of the city where this new, uh, well not new, but let's say rediscovered um, mode of engagement is not necessarily available. Mm -hmm. and it brings mm -hmm. out some of the inequities around the digital divide and those kinds of elements that need to be focused on. Now we have a, de a department of computer science and they actually have a data science project that's working with the city they just came out with an article last week identifying all of the, the deserts, if you will, mm -hmm. of where no, there's no connectivity and the city is trying to put together a strategy to address those. So hopefully it will lead to um, a more equitable distribution of broadband down the line. But that's something we have to recognize mm. as we're moving into more and more of these modes that not everyone has the same access as others. And we need to keep that in mind and think about um, the, the, the equitable piece of it for how we do our engagement. Mm, which might actually have an interesting kind of flip benefit for you in terms of when you're talking about creating an inclusive economy That's within right. your community by identifying these deserts of digital exactly. connection, perhaps helping that as a first step. Julia, the, the, the final comment here, how are you looking at um, opportunities through digital transformation well, I mean, they were, they were fascinating reflections and uh, in some ways I find it difficult to add to them because <laughs> they resonate so strongly, I think, with our experience. Certainly Deborah's comment uh, around um, different opportunities, not just for local engagement, but for global engagement. 
I think that mm. aspect of, of digital enablement is really exciting from the perspective of universities seeking to, to make a positive difference to communities. Um, and it, indeed, I was going to mention that the, the, the heightened awareness of the digital divide certainly has shaped uh, a lot of our local engagement work uh, over the last few years, recognising that some of the communities that we were working, well, all of the communities we were working with in different ways have pockets of, of um, where, where people either don't have the good broadband access or they don't have basic technology in some cases. Mm, mm. So our, our work in that regard has ranged from um, repurposing old university computers and taking them into public housing just so kids can go to school uh, to working with, um, in, in the case of the Wurundjeri Corporation, which is uh, a body of traditional owners in the city of Melbourne, uh, working with them to build capacity and capability within their organisation around use of digital technologies and digital platforms through staff secondment. Mm. So I think it, it, as Deborah and Derek have, have demonstrated really eloquently, it creates huge opportunities and it throws up some of the significant challenges, I think, as a world which is increasingly dependent on mm. those technologies. Thank you all very much for your time. Uh, I really appreciate it. This is across three time zones, our conversation. So um, thank you very much for the early morning and, and late nights, Deborah and Julie and, and Derek, for your easy breezy afternoon call. <laughs> thank you very much, Sarah. Good to see you, Deborah and Julie. Yeah, good to see okay, you. Nice Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Thank you. You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast.